0: This is StoryBeat with Steve Cutin, a podcast for the creative mind. StoryBeat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton.
1: Thanks for joining us on Story Beat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Story Beat episodes are available at storybeat.net and on all major podcast apps and platforms. If you like this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating or review. And won't you please subscribe to Story Beat wherever you listen to podcasts? My guest today, Jason Grah, has starred on Broadway in A Grand Night for Singing, Falsettos, Stardust, Snoopy, And do black patent leather shoes really reflect up? Off-Broadway, Jason has starred in such shows as Forever Plaid, Olympus On My Mind, All In The Timing, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, which earned him a Drama Desk nomination for Best Actor in a Musical, and many more. Recently, Jason played the wonderful Wizard of Oz across America in the national tour of Wicked. Jason has performed his one-man show all over the country from Rainbow and Stars and Birdland in New York to Feinstein's in the Plush Room in LA and San Francisco, winning four Bistro Awards and a New York Nightlife Award. His critically acclaimed show with Faith Prince, The Prince and the Showboy, played at 54 Below, and the pair won a second Nightlife Award for Best Duo. In Los Angeles, Jason originated the role of Houdini in the LA production of Ragtime at the Schubert Theater and won an Ovation Award for Forbidden Broadway, Y2K LA. On TV, Jason has appeared on many shows including Six Feet Under, Rude Awakening, Friends, Frasier, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Living Single, Caroline in the City, Providence, and numerous others. Movie appearances include the title role in Sunshine Barry in the Disco Worms, Disney's Home on the Range, On Edge, Geppetto, The Dukes of Hazard in Hollywood, and Awakening of Spring. He's been heard on many cartoons, and for five and a half years, he was the voice of Lucky the Leprechaun for Lucky Charm Cereal, a balanced part of your complete breakfast. Jason has recorded over 45 CDs, including original cast albums, concerts, compilations, and three solo CDs. You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile, Jason Graw Sings Charles Strauss, Jason Graw Live at the Cinegrill, and Perfect Harmony, the songs of Jerry Herman. So for all those reasons, and many more, it's a great privilege for me to welcome the exceptionally talented Jason Graw to Story Beat today. Jason, welcome to the show.
0: Steve, thank you. Um, it's so great to be here, and that was really a, an impressive reading of my bio.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, uh, I'll take a compliment anywhere I can get it.
0: <laughs> all right, so- I'm a, little disappointed. I'm a little disappointed you weren't off book that you were actually reading it though. <laughs>
1: I try to memorize nothing on this show. Uh, um, All right. So tell us a bit about your background, your history. You've been at this game of being a performer, an actor, whatever you want to call yourself uh, for quite a while at this point. But at what age did the bug first hit you? When did you start performing as a kid?
0: Uh, My mother was a dancer in New York and uh, I grew up in Chicago and then we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma of all places. And, um, so she continued to dance and to perform. So I, it was a lightning bolt moment. The first time I saw her dance on stage, she was really, really a fabulous performer and dancer. And uh, I saw her do wonderful town uh, when I was four years old in a Mm. community theater outside Chicago. Wow. And that was it. And she, I remember her, she danced uh, the big conga thing with all the sailors and all that, and she was the only gal on stage, and uh, I was mesmerized. And and
1: did you immediately know that that's what you wanted to do?
0: Uh, I knew that I loved it. I didn't know if I had any talent for it. Uh, I did community theater, you know, in Tulsa, and then I started, uh, I did, I was a newsboy in Gypsy uh, with my mom at Tulsa Little Theater. She was Tessitura the refined stripper, and I was a newsboy. Uh, and uh, that was pretty much the time where I went, oh, my God, this is, I, I am so stage struck. And you can't do Gypsy and not be completely transformed by that show. And uh, so that's when I really, the bug hit me, and I, I did shows, you know, in town and all this. But all the while that I was acting, I was an oboe player. An oboe and- player? Yeah, and I was really good. I was a complete oboe nerd. And uh, so I was really, really serious about my oboe. So the oboe, I took very seriously, and I really planned on pursuing a career in classical music, Mm. uh, whether it be, you know, sitting in an orchestra, which didn't thrill me, or being a concert solo oboist, which is really what thrilled me. And um, so I was doing that and acting at the same time.
1: Interesting. So, at what point did you think, maybe I do want to be a performer. How, what do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as an actor or an
0: entertainer? What, what, how do you think of yourself? Well, I think of myself as very entertaining. Well, there you go. You know, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I... I, I think of myself as a prostitute, really. And uh, I, I, I am an actor and I'm a singer and I am a comic if need be. And I'm a hoofer if need be. And uh, I'm a musician and I'm a voiceover person. So, you know, I, I'll basically do whatever I get hired to do. But uh, <laughs> you're, you're,
1: you're, a, you're a mercenary is what you are.
0: Totally. <laughs> Listen, you got a check for me. I'll be that.
1: I, I have the exact same attitude toward being a writer. Uh, you know, if you want to pay me, I will do whatever you want me to write. As long as I can kind of figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm exactly. with you. Exactly. With you. So, so
0: at what age did you start to hoof or perform or, or tread the well, board? So, so I, I went to a Southern Methodist university in Dallas and uh, where I was accepted as an oboe major. And, um, I really hated my oboe teacher and he, I hated making the reeds. I hated the way he sounded. He had a very Germanic, loud, blatty sound and he turned beet red and you could hear his adenoids like when he played, it was really disgusting. And, uh, So I quit and uh, I was like, all right, this is like not going the way I wanted to. Plus I had to be second chair in the SMU orchestra. Uh, The first chair was the conductor's wife and I thought I was better than she was. So that was annoying too. So I got accepted to Cincinnati college conservatory of music and as a musical theater major and also as an oboe major. And the year that I transferred from SMU to Cincinnati Conservatory, my oboe teacher, Devere Moore, also transferred from SMU to Cincinnati Conservatory. Oh no. I know, you can't <laughs> make that stuff up. So I thought that was a sign from the gods above to put down the oboe and pick up my tap shoes. So I uh, I became full-time musical theater major.
1: Wow, so at, at, this was in Cincinnati? Yep. And, and you got your degree in theater, then?
0: Yeah, I got a BFA in musical theater, and at that time, uh, there were only like less than a handful of schools that offered a musical theater major. Sure. You know, back, back in the Punic War days. Um, so. I, I was... remember. I remember
1: the Punic Wars. Remember was, those are great wars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think we were out in the fields together, Steve. So. so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> there must be a picture of us together somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so how long were you at that before you thought to yourself, you know what, I'm actually pretty decent at this and maybe I'll take a crack at, at trying to make money with it. Was, it. was it immediately or did it take you a while before you had that kind of confidence?
0: It was immediate. It was really immediate. Uh, even while I was an oboe major, I was acting in Dallas and doing shows at theater three in Dallas. And then, um, my, I did, uh, uh, the lyric theater in Oklahoma city during my freshman year. Uh, I did that. That was my first summer stock experience. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was uh like a steamroller it was like obviously this is the right choice to do and i never looked back I, I knew that this is what i had to do
1: so you are you know i've seen a number of your performances i'm pretty sure i saw you in ragtime in in la i'm pretty sure this yeah. is the this is the one with Marin mazi and and stokes mitchell
0: uh no, Maren did the broad, Toronto Broadway Company. She was in the original cast. We, it was weird because we did the U.S. premiere in Los Angeles. We opened before the Broadway Company, and uh, Stokes Mitchell was the lead in it. Uh, he left the Toronto Company, which had not come down to Broadway yet, and did our L.A. company, That's, and then went know. back to Broadway and opened it there. So I did it out here at the Schubert Theater, and we ran a year, and I played Houdini.
1: I, I'm pretty sure because I, I saw that pr- production of it back in the day. So I'm pretty sure I would have seen you in it as well. I, you, I, my assumption is, is you're best known for musical theater. You're, you know, I, That's my assumption is that people, when they think of you for various things, musical theater is the first thing that comes to their mind. And you, everything I've seen on video of you and so on, you are what I would call a high wattage, high energy performer. There's, there's not a lot of sleepiness in your performance. It's very high wattage. So what is it about musicals in particular, then, that attracts you? Is it the flash of it all?
0: <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question. Well, um, for me, it was, a, it was a very basic thing that it combined my classical Training and all the music training that I had with the joy of acting that I had. Mm-hmm. So, musical theater was just to me the most apparent and obvious outlet that I could have for all the stuff that I did. And I did so much because I am a hoofer and I love to dance. I'm not a brilliant dancer, but I'm a good hoofer. People, when they see me hoof, think I'm a great dancer. And then I would get called into major dance auditions and they go, oh. <laughs> Our mistake, but uh, yeah. So, but musical theater combined all the elements that I loved, and you know, I, I'm a sight reader, and I do think of myself as a musician. And I had a lot of training in sight reading, and I'm a pianist. I I studied piano for almost twenty years, and and my oboe training and all that. So, I loved the music, and I loved the comedy and the energy i loved the the fellow high watt, wattage performers in musical theater mm-hmm. it's a different breed musical theater world the people that i worked with they just that we i spoke the same language as they did well, you know,
1: you're also an extremely good singer, and that, that certainly helps, you know. Uh, I think that when you, what you talk about in terms of being a good, a good dancer but not a great dancer, the mm-hmm. difference for someone like you, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're really good at selling it, whether you think you're good at it or not. It's a sales yes, absolutely. job.
0: Uh, absolutely. And many dance auditions that I went into, I sold the hell out of it, even though my feet didn't know what the hell they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a seller. I, I,
1: well, I like to be an addict, but that's a whole other thing.
0: Um, <laughs> we'll talk after the interview. Uh,
1: there you go. Um, all right. So, all right. I want to talk about the creation of character and what you do when you receive a script. So when you, uh, the obvious first thing you're going to do is read it. But beyond that, how do you develop a character? How do you start to think about the development of what you're going to do with that particular persona, persona I should say?
0: You know, it's different in, in so many, every show is just different. Um, I recently have done this show, I created the the role of Scrooge. Can you imagine? I created the role of Scrooge. Um, the, Scrooge has been done a two, by two billion actors, but in the new musical, Scrooge in Love, uh, that was premiered in San Francisco several years ago, and now we've done it Three Christmases at the 42nd Street Moon. Mm. And this is the sequel to Christmas Carol. And it's musicalized. Larry Grossman wrote the oh, score, sure. uh, who's so fantastic, who wrote Grind, and you know him, and Snoopy and Minnie's Boys. And he's just a phenomenal writer. And I had done Snoopy with him in New York. And uh, and Kellen Blair wrote the lyrics, and Dwayne Poole wrote the book. And so, you know. To prepare for something like Scrooge, first of all, I thought, I'm obviously way too young to be playing Scrooge, so <laughs> I'm so insulted, and then I Googled him, and Scrooge was like in his early 50s during Christmas Carol, so it turned out I was really too old to play Scrooge, but that's another story, um, So, I, but I read Christmas Carol, and I wanted to get, you know, I just wanted to get the background of Scrooge, and I, I don't know that I've ever read Christmas Carol, I think I just watched... The Mister Magoo version, or something. Um, was, so you
1: you should read the uh, the version of it by Charles Dickens with two K's. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's an old Monty Python sketch. a Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens with two t- two Ks.
0: With two Ks. <laughs> funny. So, right, So, you, you did you did you then read the book or did you just? Yes, yeah, not- so I actually I read the book, and it's not a hard read. It's a it's a fascinating read, and it just gave me some background to who he was, and it gave my mind a playing area, in order to then be able to pick up. A year later, after Christmas Carol happened, so I had all the information and the history um, of what Scrooge had been through the year before, so that when he got to this year later, where he's a little more joyful and the ghosts come back to him, um, you know, I I, ha- I had a, a new playing field to start out. But I try to go into stuff, you know, not too opinionated about um, about my choices for the character or to not have too many really specific ideas in mind about this is how he must be played because Mm -hmm. I do want to be open and I'm a pretty open actor and I'm pretty open to suggestions and I'm also an actor that once I get married to an idea it's really hard for me to let go of that idea so I try So as I've gotten older, I really try to just go in with not any specifics in mind, just some ideas, but nothing that I've gotten completely attached to so that if the director doesn't see it that way, I won't be brokenhearted when it's taken away from me.
1: I think the listener should uh, pay attention to what Jason just said, because I think that's important that you go in unencumbered by a specific thought that's going to drive the train when you may wind up in an audition, not an audition, but in a rehearsal period in which everybody's doing something that counters what you're doing, and then you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, exactly. Then you're on your own island doing your own show, and it's not really having anything to do with what anybody else is doing. And I've been in those positions before, certainly.
1: It's the old adage of you want to give a performance that, at least in the beginning phases of it, is uninflected in every way.
0: Yeah, Yeah, eventually it'll get inflected, you know, eventually lock into things. But uh, it's it's rehearsals can be such a great time when you're just open to your surroundings and the possibilities and to the new people that are around you and the director. When you you know, the other thing, too, that I wanted to mention, Steve, was that, you know, there there are certain shows that I audition for and you go in and. You know, obviously the director likes what they see and they like your take. And so, you know, you're kind of on the right track uh, for what they're thinking. There's other things that you just get offered. And so those kind of things, especially, you don't want to be too specific, you know, as to as far as your choices.
1: Is there joy for you in, in finding the role when you're in rehearsal like that?
0: It can be. It can be. You know, it's... it's uh, Yeah, like Scrooge and Love, uh, our director, Diane McBride. I mean, it it was so joyful. I love a director who who doesn't say no, who lets you try anything, who isn't... You know, there are certain directors that are very protective of the piece and very nervous about what you're going to do to it. (laughs) (laughs) And that is not so pleasant cuz then you don't feel like you're in there with them. I love a rehearsal period where no is just not an option. You can try anything, you can be a jackass, you know, it's a sand a sandbox that you play in and eventually if it's not working, you figure it out. The director says, "Let's try plan B here." And that, you know that's that's my favorite time, and yes, it's one of the happiest experiences of my life it's man. when
1: you're you're really you're really creating at that point more than just doing you're creating
0: yes, yeah, and then it's a dialogue, it's a dialogue with you and the other actors and the director mm-hmm. you're all finding it together, and that that is thrilling when that happens. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen enough to me um you know uh. But when it does, I I hold on to it for dear life and hope that I get to work with those directors again.
1: All right. So you're at a point in your career, you already mentioned this a moment ago, where sometimes you get asked to do shows. You don't have to go on audition for them. Someone has seen you before, has heard about you, whatever it is. And they say, we want Jason to do X, Y, or Z. That that must be very fulfilling for you to receive an invitation to come do something versus you having to go earn it.
0: Um, yeah, I do like that a lot. And it helps, too, when you've slept with a lot of people.
1: Oh, well, I guess that's the secret. I,
0: yeah, it uh, really is the secret for all you listeners out there. <laughs> Just and, and,
1: and, and by the way, I don't know why, but that's never worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So I, I'm curious about your philosophy toward the audition process, because obviously in the beginning of your career, people were not asking you to be in shows. You had to go audition for them. So. Okay. How, How do you prepare for auditions? What do you think about when you're going to audition? What is your audition philosophy?
0: Well, I have to say, I used to love them a lot more than I do now. I, you know, when I moved to New York in in 1980, I just couldn't wait to go audition for anything. It just was, you know, I wasn't on stage yet in New York. um, And I loved going in the room where I had an audience for five minutes or 10 minutes. Did you, think of
1: it, did you think of it as you're giving a performance, not not trying to get a show? A, a show? You're I did.
0: Up? I mean, yes, I did. There's there's always that feeling of you're going in to pass a test. But uh, the fun audition rooms, you know, you just go in and you just, this is your chance. You've got four minutes to show off and do your thing. And I didn't know what I had to lose when I started out. You know, I, I had no idea. So I just went in and I just wanted to share what I do and and see what happened and it was thrilling to me i i was elated now you know you go in and you 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 have a little more history with the people behind the desk or and you might want a job too much and so i i really just try to stay in my own skin you Mm -hmm. know and just and do my own work i will i'll tell you this that i i had one audition song that i did for the majority of my 15 years in New York. (laughs) One one song? It was one song. I mean, I would sing all the things you are. If they wanted a ballad, I would sing all the things you are by Jerome Kern. And I would also do good thing going from merrily. We roll along, which was just happening when I got to New York. And, um, but I had this song that I won the Elks talent show with in Tulsa, (laughs) Oklahoma. Perhaps you remember. um, it was uh, it was Madeline from Jacques Brel. I
1: I never I never miss an Elks performance. <laughs> uh,
0: I had that feeling about you.
1: So I, I have been in my life. I've also been a theater lighting designer. It's one of the side things that I've done in my life. And I did a production of Jacques Brel here in Pittsburgh just a couple of years ago. Fantastic, Madeline. I know it's a terrific song.
0: Oh, it's great. Where'd you do it?
1: Uh, here. Well, I did it for a, a company called Picked Classic Theater. Mm. Uh, and and uh, we did it at a theater that w- it was just basically an empty four wall that we went in. It wasn't even a theater. It was just a space. It was it. Turned it perfect into a t- Turned it into a little cabaret space and made Jacques Brel a cabaret show. It it's perfect. It's a
0: perfect yeah. venue for that. Yeah.
1: All right. So yeah. so you sang these two songs. Did you have other songs, or those are the two main ones?
0: Yeah, so Madeline, you know, they would ask for a country song, and I'd sing it. I'm waiting for Madeline in front of the picture. Sh-. You know, I would do it that way. And then if they wanted a French accent, I'm waiting for Madeline in front of the picture. show. I would do it every single way till the till, and I got a lot of jobs with it. And then toward the end of the, those fifteen years, I would get requests not to sing Madeline. Oh. In front of so yeah so that's why I moved to LA <laughs> you
1: think it, was time, it? it was time to get out of Dodge was not
0: it it was time to get out of Dodge that no one had heard Madeline out here in LA so I thought well I got to go to a new city then did,
1: did you did you ever go to auditions desperate for a job or did you always avoid that problem
0: oh god no I'm sure I was desperate I'm sure there's been many times Uh yeah I w- there were certain things that I was I really wanted I really wanted the money there was one of my first jobs uh, in out of New York I got the first thing I got was like two weeks after I moved to New York I got Godspell at Equity Library theater and <laughs> um, and that was great it was 21 bucks a week but it was a great it was a showcase and it was a really popular theater and agents would come and I got an agent right off the bat and that was really, really good. And so that kind of was a great launching pad for all of us. It was weird to do Godspell as a showcase because you had a bunch of actors who were trying to outdo each other with, you know, crying, crying at the cross with Jesus up on the cross. We were all like trying to show our dramatic jobs. (laughs) It was a little desperate sometimes, but it it was a great production. Scott Bakula was Jesus. Oh, really? And uh, he was very hot. We were all kind of attracted to Jesus. And uh, and Liz Calloway was Joanne. And, it, you know, it was a really, it was really fun. But I've certainly, uh, one of the first jobs I got after that was Goodspeed Opera House. And I was desperate. I wanted that job. It was $360 a week, which seemed to me like $10,000 a week at the time. And I needed the money. And I went in and I had three callbacks. And I didn't I hadn't heard anything like for a week. And I called the casting director, Warren Pincus. I found his number was in the phone book back when we all had our numbers in the phone book. And I called him at home and I disguised my voice and I used like a bad Puerto Rican accent. And I said, hello, Mr. Pincus he goes yes and I said <laughs> he talked like that he was like hello yes and I said uh, I auditioned for a jewel for a uh, bloomer girl at Goodspeed Opera House and I wonder if you make the offer yet it was a horrible accent like just I don't know what the, it was a terrible accent and he said who is this and I said oh I cannot tell you my name <laughs> you'll never speak to me again but so we went back and forth and he finally said yes we've made the offers who is this and I said, it's Jason Grah, and he said, hello, Jason, and I said, please forgive me, I'm desperate, and uh, I've never done something that kind of cheeky, and he said, we'll let you know, but most of the offers have gone out, and then, like, two days before this rehearsal started, I got an offer, so clearly, I was, like, eighth choice, but I got it.
1: (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, that's all that counts, right? (laughs) 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 All right, let's talk about directors for a little bit. Um, you obviously are. Anytime you're in a show, you're going to be dealing with somebody directing you. You're not directing yourself, I don't think, unless it's your, unless it's your one-man show. Do you do you direct yourself in your one-man show?
0: Uh, I have, uh, and but I really need an eye. Uh, for most of the shows that I do now, I have. A good friend, um, I have a couple of good friends that I just trust implicitly to, to help me sh- form the show, and, and they tell me what works and what doesn't, and you just need somebody to bounce ideas off of, so well, I'd really love to have a director for my shows. Yes. Sure, I,
1: I guess if you're directing yourself on, on uh, camera, it's a little easier because you can actually play it back and look at things, but it's really yes. hard to
0: do it on stage. Yes, it really is. It and is, and is. but and in it fact, you,
1: I was going to say, in fact, you don't really see too many shows directed by the star of the show. Where, True. Where, where movies, you do see that. You see directors right. directing themselves. Um, right. So what would you say are perhaps the most important lessons you've taken away from working with great directors? What have you learned from great directors that have then influenced the way you've gone forward in your career?
0: Um, excellent, excellent question. And, um, it's part of what I just said. I love a a director that creates a fun sandbox for you to play in that doesn't say no, that doesn't micromanage you, uh, that makes you doubt your instincts. I love if a director hires you, it's so important that, you know, they trust you, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to, and there are the directors out there that hire you and then they try to change everything about why they hired you you
1: right. know why why would they do that that makes no sense
0: it happens more than it should uh but they do it for their reasons I, you know i'm very forgiving now because you know i've been quarantining for 8 months and haven't worked so i i i'm much more uh understanding about those kind of things, but I know that directors have, you know, their reputation and their ass on the line, and they've got so much to deal with, and so they, you know, there are certain ones that that just kind of clamp down on you and put a straitjacket on you, and that does not bring out your best work. Mm -hmm. I like a director that just really allows you to make some mistakes and make them loud and proud and then they say all right that's not working let's try this.
1: Mm -hmm. So you you like to well obviously we've talked about the sandbox of rehearsal uh, that you like it when they're allowing you to just try anything.
0: I really do I really do you know as long as it's within the you know realm of the show and the tone of the show but yeah, I, I think rehearsals are the time to take the chances and to find out what's right and what's wrong. And you know, I, I've I've worked with directors with pursed lips and their hands are together while they're watching you and their hands are like at their chin and their lips are pursed and that makes my lips pursed and other things and I you know it just makes you so nervous and I hate being nervous in a rehearsal situation I don't want to be in a rehearsal situation where I'm like gosh I hope the director likes this I want the I want to be in a rehearsal situation where I'm working with a director and I want to I want him to be happy. I want her to be happy and I want to find things. I want to be happy, you know, just some freedom. I really like some freedom.
1: Well, have you, uh, and no, no names are necessary, but have you ever worked on a show where the, the outcome of the performance that you gave was not really at all what you wanted to achieve. Or in fact, it was against what you wanted to achieve. And yet you did it that way. Anyway, have you had that happen to you? Uh,
0: I have had a couple times, Usually, you, yes, I have. I have. Um, or you. I got through the rehearsal period and then eventually, you know, what you do, because you do have to give the director what they want ultimately. And so um, if it does go against your grain, I do try to give them what they want. And then eventually... I make, I do that, and then I make it make sense to myself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that happens after the rehearsal period's over, and then it's just you and the audience. So then you can kind of find your way then, you know, without that constant um, navigating or navigator.
1: Well, in a case like that, did you wind up by the, the end of the run of the show having changed it entirely?
0: I've never totally changed it entirely, no. But it did make sense, and I did manage sometimes to get... Uh, you know, a couple of my ideas in. I've I have driven several directors just crazy, and um, you know, but mostly, mostly I, I really appreciate them. The directors that I just love to work with, though, are are fun and they laugh loud and they they understand. And a lot of them were actors, so they get it. You know, they understand the process. They know what you're going through, and they they remember what it was like themselves to do it. I'm sometimes surprised when I've worked with uh, directors who used to be actors who seem to have forgotten that process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're very exacting. And it's like, uh, it was just 10 years ago that you were in my position. So I would, I'd like some compassion here,
1: you know. All right. So can you think of or or relate, uh, you know, uh, a single or maybe more than one, great direction that you got from a director that you've always remembered? Like that was the best direction I've ever gotten. Do you have one of those?
0: <laughs> oh, how interesting. Oh my God, do I have a lightning bolt moment with that? I will say I was doing a show Olympus on my mind and I was having a very hard time. They fired the first director. Do you remember that show? It was a-
1: uh... I remember <laughs> its existence, but I don't- I've never Yeah, well
0: that. we did the workshop which was called Heaven on Earth and uh and then it was a flop and then we we did it at michael bennett studios then we did a bunch of backers auditions then we brought it to off off broadway and they reconfigured the whole plot and ron raines was in it and lewis stadlin and faith prince and peggy hewitt and emily zacharias it was a fantastic cast and i was having a hard time uh finding my way with it and um We were all, it was not a happy situation. We were making a hundred bucks a week and we didn't trust the show since it was a flop in the workshop. And so I was kind of had one foot out the door and everybody was just uncomfortable during the rehearsal period. And the first preview, our our first press night, the director came up to me and said, I played Mercury, the Greek God, the son of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And you know, with the wings on my feet and all that stuff. And he said, I just want to give you one note Instead of just kind of observing the action and kind of being, you know, the know-it-all Mercury, how about just having a ball with this entire experience, just loving everything that's happening around you? What does that do to you? And I was like, well, that's a pretty enormous, drastic note to give me right before our first our first press night. <laughs> and it totally gelled, just like that. I was like, I'm sorry I didn't get this note three months ago, but I'm going to take this, and it everything just gelled. It was like, oh, I could have a blast doing this part, and the, that the character of Mercury is loving everything that's going on, and the stuff that he's involved with. He's just getting delight, a devilish glee out of the whole thing. It changed the entire experience for me.
1: Well, that's, that's, a, that's an awesome thing to have happen, and, and I'm sure the audience picked up on it instantly.
0: They did. They really did, because I was kind of flatlining there for a while, and I thought, oh, God, I don't know if I'm any good with this, and it made the whole character come alive, and so so it was, you know, down to the wire, but it was good. The, the One of the, my favorite directors I ever worked with was Garland Wright. I don't know if you remember Garland, but... I, I did. I don't. He directed at Hartford stage. I think he was the artistic director at Hartford stage and arena stage and at the Guthrie. And he was the artistic director at the Guthrie and I played oh, Candide. Wait a minute.
1: That, okay. So now I know who you're talking about.
0: Oh my God. He was just fantastic. And I got cast as Candide in 1990 and, uh, It was right before Forever Plaid was opening, and I was doing the workshop of Forever Plaid off Broadway, and I had to leave it to go do Candide for four months, and we had a six-week rehearsal period, which sounded god-awful to me. Six weeks rehearsing in Minnesota. I was like, what am I going to do? And he just, I couldn't wait to go to rehearsal every day. Why? What, What did he do? He just had an energy. He was like, nothing, there's no wrong answers here. Just come in and just, he said, the only thing you can do wrong is to stifle your instincts. He said, just come out and do it and and try anything you want to because that's, that's, That's how we're gonna play this Candide, and you know I would do a couple strange things. I came skipping in one day and waved at everybody before singing "Life is happiness indeed, mares to ride." And so I would like wave with this big shit ass grin. And finally one day he just said, "Yeah, Jason, don't do the wave." And then you know just like cool it with the wave. But other than that, I'm 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 on board. But we just couldn't wait. And we wanted to like shock each other with the choices that we were all making. And everybody's choices became bigger and greater because everybody around you was doing them. So we loved going out on that limb.
1: Interesting. Well, so when you uh, first start working on a show, and we've already talked about character development, but how do you break a script down? What is your process for taking a script and looking looking at it reading it breaking it down into its component parts how do you do it how do you approach it?
0: Well I'm not all that scientific um, about it um, I read the I read the play and then I read my scenes and then I go back and read my scenes I count my lines just kidding I just pay attention to the people that I'm talking to in those scenes mm-hmm. so I just to figure out what those relationships are with those people. And yet I'm doing this from a distance Um, because again, I don't want to, I don't want to go in with like too many preconceived ideas. So I try to remain detached. Um, A lot of experiences that I have are a lot of lines and the rehearsals are not a six week rehearsal period. A lot of times it's a two to three week rehearsal period. And so I try to really, get the lines in my head. And I try to not make choices with the line readings, but I try to just get the the words in my head so that I can take them and do different things. But if I'm worried about the memorizing of lines during rehearsals, uh, that puts a, you know, a damper on everything because then you're going in with with nerves and, oh God, am I going to Am I going to deliver and am I going to screw up anybody and am I going to screw up? So that's the one thing I don't want to have. I want to be in command of the lines. Well, let's, so, let,
1: let's, let's look at memorization, which I think is a very important, obviously a very important part of being an actor. Uh, what is your trick for memorizing lines or do you not have a trick? How do you do it?
0: Well, I suppose, um, you know, when I talk to other actor friends, it seems like what I have in common with many of my friends is that it's a photographic kind of a thing. Hmm. I don't know if this is a scientific deal where I look at the page and go, now I'm going to let my photographic memory take over. But, uh, you know, you look at the, you look at the page and you just, the more you just read the scenes and look at them, it starts to stick in your brain, like where, where the line is on the page. So I'll know like, okay, that's at the top of the page. This is in the middle. And I see the words and that's how I memorize music too. I mean, I really see the music and the words and the notes on the music. That's a gift. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of musicians do that. And, uh, it seems to me that a lot of my actor friends do the same thing. You know, it's kind of by osmosis. I don't do it consciously, but it just kind of, the more you read it, it just sticks. You know?
1: Interesting. Interesting. So, so I think there are a lot of actors that have to work very hard at memorization. It sounds like it comes somewhat easily to you.
0: Yeah, uh, it can. Yeah, it used to come easier. <laughs> well, As I get older, it's like, oh, yeah, I got to work at this a little harder.
1: Well, that glue in the head slowly starts to strip away over time. It I, I, seems. Yes. It's a, what did I have for breakfast? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, it
0: does. Well, and also I, I really do look at it as like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, losing it up top, but we have so much information in there that just keeps going in. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of information and, uh, You know, so I do have to start earlier memorizing and just spending more time with it.
1: You've done a lot of live theater. You've done a certain amount of camera work, but you've done a lot of live theater. What's the longest run you've been in? What's the longest?
0: Uh, Wicked, that I just did. Wicked, uh, I ran for, uh, I was the wizard for a year and a half.
1: Wow. On the road.
0: On the road, yeah. And uh, part of it, which was so great, we were in... uh, in Los Angeles at the Pantages Theater here for nine weeks, uh, in the middle of my run, which was just bliss because it's about two miles from my house, so that was well, that, really fantastic.
1: that's so you could actually sleep in your own bed at night instead of oh out my thing.
0: god it was great and I pocketed the per diem it was fantastic, well,
1: that, that um, is fantastic. all right so yeah. what what is your what is your psychological secret for being in a long run and not letting it you know bore you to death. I know that's a big problem for a lot of performances. They suddenly get down that rabbit hole and it's very hard to come up with a fresh feeling performance all the time. How do you do it? What do you do?
0: Paycheck. Think about the paycheck. Ooh, next question. No, I, uh, it actually that it helped a lot with wicked, you know, that, that really did. Cause a year and a half was, that's the longest run. I did forever plaid for a year. And, um, I got very bored by the end of that year, but I had done the I had done the out of town tryout. I'd done the workshop, so by the end of it, I was like, "Oh my god, I need to, oh, I gotta spread my wings." But and then I did ragtime for a year, and I was ready to leave ragtime as well. Um, of course, the last night I was sobbing. I was just sobbing, but I felt like I'd found everything I could find with Houdini. Um, so with Wicked. It was interesting because um, I had not done a year and a half show, and you're traveling with a company of people, and the company is ever-changing. It's always morphing. Mm. People are coming and going. And that was shocking to me, you know, because mostly I get into a show and I'm with that company through the show. Right. And, and Wicked, you know, I, I, was got, I got in the show, I joined in Omaha, and I was very attached to the Two Witches MK Morrissey and Jenna Claire Mason. And, um, you know, and those were the people that I worked the closest with and Jody Gelb was Madame Morrible. And you develop this camaraderie with your company, you know, and it's a company and you're, you're with those people and it's a safe haven to be with. Then, you know, a few months into it, people's contracts are running out. People get other jobs. They, you know, everybody was on a different level of contract. So people would come and go and that that kept the show fresh because you constantly went back into rehearsals. I worked with many different Elphabas and many different Glindas and uh, several Madame Morables and everybody brought something new to it. So Hmm. that keeps it fresh for you, you know,
1: other, all right. So the shows you've been in that didn't have company changes where you were with that set group for a long time. Did that become very challenging after a while, to keep finding fresh ways to do it?
0: It did. If it's a great role, um, like Mendel and falsettos, I probably could have done it for 10 years. Uh, I was so happy doing it. I didn't, I closed the Broadway company and I closed the national tour. Um, But if it's a great role that's challenging, that you love the piece, Uh, I could do it forever. Um, In something like Ragtime, which I loved the piece, but Houdini kind of pops in and he pops out. I felt like I had gone as far as I could go with character. So I did feel by the end, like, all right, I'm ready for a new challenge. Yeah,
1: it's got to be a lot harder when you're not on stage all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's got to be harder because you have all those long gaps in between. Yes. or, Or even if they're short gaps, they're still gaps. And yeah, so that, that's got to be a, a, a lot harder. All right. So you have appeared um, in a variety of different kinds of things. So you mostly you've done musical comedies, but um, you've also done dramas and straight plays and, and straight uh, movies and TV and so on. Um, do you have a preference? Do you prefer to do musical comedy over all else? Or do you like to do drama? If I said to you right now, Jason, you're you're only going to get to do one kind of one genre of Performance for the rest of your life? Would you have a preference?
0: Yeah, musical theater.
1: Musical yeah. theater,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And that doesn't mean I only want to do that. But if you were gonna, if you were gonna make me pick, gonna make me choose, Steve, <laughs> I would definitely say musical theater. Um, I love the variety of it all. I love, I love doing so many different things. And I, you know, sitcoms were a great obvious step for any of us who are in musical theater sitcoms were just a very easy transition Mm -hmm. because we know about rhythm. We know about laughs. We know about setups, you know, about just the rhythm of a laugh, how important taking a beat or losing a beat, you know, just all of that. It was such an easy transition. Um, When I came out to LA and I did a lot of sitcoms, um, it just, And I thought, and a lot of the casting directors said, we love musical theater people because they understand the rhythm of comedy. And, you know, back in the day, there were live audiences for many of the sitcoms. So you knew how to play off the audience and how to hold for the laugh and do that, you know. So I really, really loved uh, that world. You Um, you
1: really knew how to deliver a punch on the line. You really knew where to Yeah,
0: I have a good rhythm with that. And I think a lot of us in my business have that.
1: So, what then, what then makes drama m- more challenging, I guess, or different? What, what is it about drama that's tougher to do or less appealing?
0: Well, I love drama. Um, I find drama to be easier than comedy. You know, that saying. Really? That, Dying's that's easy, but comedy's comedy a bit. Is hard. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, I, I ask that question frequently of comedy writers that I have on the show, because I've had quite a few comedy writers on the show, and I say to them, why is comedy so difficult to write? You know, it, it's notoriously difficult to write. I've written a whole bunch of it myself. It's really challenging to write and write well so that it actually works. And, you know, it's almost, it's, a, it's an impossible question to, to
0: answer. Um, do you, do you have think, some idea? Well, I think as a writer, um, you know, you got to write stuff that you think is funny as a writer, but you don't ever know until you get it out there and hear if it gets a laugh or not. Right, exactly. So, you know, and so, and, and I feel that way so much about in rehearsals, um, you know. If no one's laughing in the room or everybody, you always get to that point in every single rehearsal period where everybody's heard the jokes, everybody knows where it is. So you're flatlining and you don't know if you have a funny bone in your body or not. So then you get to the audience and the audience informs you you know what, what's working, what's not. It, you, and we're often surprised as actors, sometimes we're the last to know if something's funny. You know, We don't look at it from the audience's perspective.
1: How often and, have you been in a show where you're delivering funny lines and they're clearly funny lines, and you're getting laughs in performance. And then one night you hit a wall, and you get an audience, and they don't laugh at anything. I assume that happens now and then.
0: Oh my God, it happens all the time. It will never not happen. You know, it, and now I'm, now I'm to the, that happens so much. that now I'm to the point where I do have a, if I remember right, it's been so long since I've been on stage, but uh, earlier this year, before I made my swan song, before COVID took over.
1: Yeah, we're, um, we're talking in the time of COVID for those who are listening, because it might be three years from now that they're listening to this show. Oh my God,
0: that's right. That's right. Yes, we're in month eight, right? Eight yes. or nine COVID.
1: That's right.
0: So, uh, you know, but it's it's you go out there and you have a great night where everything plays. And when those nights happen where the audience laughs at everything, it's like you're flying, you're flying and you just navigate and you can pull in. And you, it's it's the most beautiful, close to God moment I can imagine uh, when you have those nights where everything works and the audience laughs at all the right places and you can pull in. But now I, when I have those nights, I start to think, you know, oh, tomorrow's going to be a bitch because this will never be as good tomorrow and I'm going to try to recreate the magic. So, you know, it's it morphs every single night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Never know. You never know.
1: All right. So I want to ch- ch- uh, change gears a little bit here and talk about a whole different kind of acting that you've done a bu- bunch of, which is voice acting. Suddenly... There's no face, there's no uh, body movement. You can't emphasize things with how you move through space. It has to be with your voice. How do you approach voice acting differently, if at all, from stage acting?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. And you have written so many cartoons. I I have. Jesus, so you know about that. I do. Uh, I find it challenging. Um, I made my living in voiceovers for quite a few years Um, and you know, now everything is, I mean, I love, I love working with a director. I love working with producers. Uh, you know, when we were, when I was doing my animated stuff, there was always somebody in the room to give you direction and Mm -hmm. I craved it. I just craved the direction and they could see, you know, the action of what was going to be happening and, you know they would pass that information to me, and that gave that helped me so much because you 've got to do you've got to have so much in your mind uh, when you 're doing voiceover to make everything so clear. I find it very, very challenging, uh, and i you know as of late haven 't been doing as many voiceovers you you know now everything is Off our computers and auditions are at home and you don't have any feedback and you don't have anybody to say try it this way or he's running from his mother and his the relationship is this, you know, you've got to fill in a lot of blanks and um, and do a fair amount of improv as well.
1: Is there is there a different way that you modulate your voice than you would? Uh, obviously, you're not going to be as um, you're not going to push your voice out as far uh, because you're not trying to hit the last row of a theater. You're dealing with a microphone. You you have to modulate yourself. Yeah.
0: Yes, you do. You're absolutely right. And you know when I was the. Lucky Charms Leprechaun, you know, I mean, it was all very light. It was nine o'clock in the morning when we had to do it. But, you know, I'd be, there'd be eight magical marshmallow sheep. It's magically delicious. You know, it was all very light and, you know, and easy. Although it was high. It was very high for me with so much testosterone.
1: Still. Well, I, I want to refer the listeners to... Um a great episode of story beat with kelly ward i don't know if you ever worked with kelly but he's a dear old friend of mine uh he's a voice director in animation and you can actually hear him chat about what it's like to direct animation kelly who also played putsy in greece in the movie greece um so he's been around a little bit and he and i have Mm -hmm. known each other a very long time The, the the isn 't it beautiful though to do voice acting when you get it because you don 't have to put on makeup and costume, or do you like putting on makeup and costume
0: <laughs> yeah well i uh, I do enjoy not putting on makeup I will admit um, yeah it is the whole thing is great I, I mean i love I love voiceovers I love you know that that side of it and it again it 's just a variety it 's something different. I just like to test all the Different avenues. Well, you
1: clearly have had the good graces of having many different aspects of the entertainment business be part of your career. So it's you're you're you are you have not been down one whole rabbit hole totally your whole career. Um, all right, I want to talk about set life a little bit before we start start to wind the show down. S- sets are both on stage and uh, you know uh, rehearsal periods and stage work, and then in particular movies and TV, which are a whole different animal. Are notoriously distracting places. So how do you keep your concentration?
0: On a set. Uh, On a a TV film set. Sure. I have to go and hang out on it. I just have to go and hang out on the set so I feel at home. I will go and just sit there alone. I'll go over my lines. I'll just, I'd like to sit there alone. I don't mind. I'll, I'll sit and talk to somebody. I just have to be there so it feels comfortable. Um, I don't like to sit in my trailer alone and imagine, let my mind go like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And blah, blah, blah. I just want to know every part of the set. I want to I feel like it's a familiar place that I'm at. That
1: comes, you know? from, that comes clearly from your theater work because you get yes. used to a set and you're, you know what that, every aspect of that set. I think that's probably where that comes from.
0: Yep and you know I we had to certainly do our our share of uh taking set design and stagecraft and school and all that sure. stuff so sure. I'm very very aware of that. I have to say my opening night of Wicked it was the only night I ever really perspired in Wicked like I was wringing wet and the the wizard's only on like 25 minutes, I think somebody clocked, but that's the set piece. They, they let me really work on that set because it's gargantuan. And I, I make my entrance behind the huge Oz head that comes down. It's a great entrance. And, you know, I got to, I got to navigate around the Oz head moving around and I had to move stuff. And I, you know, it was, it was overwhelming. It was so overwhelming. And I was a wreck. I was a wreck, but they they allowed me to play on that set, and they allowed me to walk around it, and they gave me a lot of time so that I could. It wouldn't just engulf me because hmm. it's huge.
1: Are you pretty good at feeling like you're present and in the moment when you're on stage or or in front of the camera? You pretty good uh,
0: yes, I, I try to be. I really, really try to be. I I love the book, The Power of Now. Uh, it's probably my bible. Um, by Eckhart Tolle and all about being in the moment, being in the present. And it really informed my acting because you can't worry about what's going to happen on the next page or, Oh God, I've got this moment coming up. I hope this is good. What am I going to do? If you are just there in that moment, it's gold, it's gold. And I really, really work at it. And sometimes I forget about it. And during this election, I've, you know, I'm trying to stay in the moment and accept it and, you know, and just be present.
1: Well, all right. So there's a huge difference between going through a two, three, four, five week rehearsal period for a live stage show and being chucked onto a TV set where there's little or no rehearsal and you just suddenly it's your time to go. You've got to be present and in the moment. Is there, is there a big difference for you? Do you have to think differently?
0: Uh, I think it's terrifying. I, you know, usually I'm guest stars on shows, so you're shot out of a cannon. So you have a lot of time to wait. And then when you're, it's finally your turn, you got to stifle the nerves and the excitement. Cause you know, it's, it's, you're, you're just out there in front of everybody and and you're not used to it. You know, it's just like you, you're a temp, temp worker kind of a thing. I, I got to do a series where I was a regular on it and I got to come back every week and I got calm. I got, so I lost, you know, some of those nerves. I will say I did Friends. Um, I was a guest on Friends and I had my character. I played the snarky casting director that Joey was auditioning for. And I played him like a real a-hole. I was like, I was eating chips during the he was auditioning for a movie and they you know and I was really rude and I was channeling you know one of the rudest casting people that I ever knew and I was really being a putz and they all thought this was the funniest thing and I've been doing it all week it was so great and everybody loved it and they'd all come up and you know compliment me and I did it for the audience not realizing that the week before Joey had just gotten fired off days of our lives they showed like the previous episode and so i was just you know out there just to get my own laughs and i had extra adrenaline to get those laughs because i was excited and so i went out for that scene knowing that there was a spin off in the works for me the casting director and i pushed it and the audience hissed At me, (laughs) They they hissed at you? They hated me because Joey had just, I didn't even pay attention to the previous week's episode. I should have sat and watched it, so I knew what he had just been going through, but I was so excited to go out and do my shtick. And uh, yes, so I'm there being really rude to Joey, who's desperate for a job and is heartbroken that he lost (laughs) his his, Dr. Drake. So they hissed at me, and so the writers gathered around me you know, we we after the scene was over, I looked at Matt LeBlanc and I said, "I don't think that's good." They they hissed at me, and he said, "Well, I I think you know they you're." It was a good kind of hiss. You know, they were hissing with you, and I was like, "I don't think anybody hisses with you." But thank you. He was, he was trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah. So the writers, the writers gathered around me like a football huddle, and they said, "Okay, we need to bring him down. We got to make him a little gentler, a little kinder." And I went. But he's a casting director. He's like a really rude casting director. And I said, they said, I know, but just do it with a smile on your face. I've gotten that direction before. And um, so I was a kinder, gentler casting director, and it all went fine. And then
1: you you had another audience at some point, right? So you got it. No, we
0: did it once. That was the one, nice. one night only, one night only. So, but
1: so so, it wasn't a rehearsal with an audience that they use. And then, a, because sometimes in sitcoms, they have a rehearsal where there's an, a live audience and then they do right. an actual performance with the live audience and they may be able to cut in various things from different parts of it.
0: Yeah. And we didn't do that, that this time. I had done that in other uh, sitcoms where you've had the two audiences, but no, this was the one shot.
1: Yeah. Well, that... Geez, it wouldn't be good to be hissed at. No, I would not not care for that.
0: (laughs) The other kind of funny, the other funny thing, if I throw in um, June Gable, who played his agent, remember his agent, uh, Estelle, who talked like that very broad. She was a New York actress, and hilarious actress that she is. Uh, She came afterwards, I was a little shaken after being hissed at and all that stuff. And she looked at me and said, well, you know, you got to remember, TV's different than musical theater. You have to really bring it down for the camera.
1: Well, well and the, other, the other thing is it's not, okay, I'm going to give you the positive spin on it if you don't mind. In truth, if they hissed at you, it means they actually cared and that, that you gave a performance that, they, that bothered them in some way, which I think is a positive thing, not necessarily a negative.
0: I'm going to take it that way, too.
1: Okay, good. So I I would be remiss if we didn't have a conversation. We've already mentioned that we're doing this in the time of COVID. And pretty much everybody in the business is not working right now. There are a few shows that are slowly coming back at the time that we're having this interview. But the world is generally shut down in the, certainly in the live theater world, there's nothing going on right now. Right. Yep. So you've also had times in your career over the length of your career where you were between jobs, between gigs, as we say, what do you do to keep your head in the game? What are you doing right now to keep yourself primed and ready for when things do turn around? How do you stay in it?
0: Well, you know, I've got a lot of survival stuff going on. My share some of it. Um, okay. You know, I, uh, I run and I work out, Bought weights and a weight bench and all this because all the gyms are closed. So I'm working out at home and uh, I run around the Hollywood Reservoir four times a week, which is great. And uh, so that saves my head. And the other thing that I've been doing, which I love that you would appreciate, is I've been taking for the last eight months a writing class. Oh, there you go. And I've never done it. And a friend of mine, Claudette Sutherland, who was the original Smitty and How to Succeed in Business right. in 1960, she has, has this writing class. And I've known her through the biz, and I love her. I just love her. She's a force of nature, and she laughs loud, and she's smart and passionate. And she was always like, I want to get you in this writing class. And I write my cabaret shows, and I write when I host things, but I would never – in a million years, call myself a writer, and so I started taking this class eight months ago. And it's every Monday and on Zoom, and it's given me a, that adrenaline rush that I really miss. And uh, it gives you know on the weekend I just start writing at Friday, and I just am like in that head till Monday class. And it's just using a different part of your brain. And you know the other thing is, which I really appreciated about it, is that. There is no future right now in the theater that we can put our fingers on. There's nothing to say, oh, well, I'm going to be doing this, which is a, how we all spend our lives thinking about the next job sure. and preparing for the next job. And we don't have that because we don't, it's the, the future so tenuous right now. Um, it will be back, but right now we have no idea. So what's great about writing is you can draw on your past and you can go think backwards and I'm getting remembering a lot of stories and and getting them on paper and embellishing them. And so that's really, that saved my soul.
1: Mm, Well, that is, that is a soul saver. There's no question about that. Yeah. Are you also with the group in the class? Are you reading stuff aloud? Are you performing?
0: We read our stories. We read our stories. And uh, you know, that's interesting because we have a few actors. There's like eight people in our class and uh we do we enjoy reading our stories. Faith Prince has been taking the class with me, my comrade Faith Prince, wow. and uh and you know, both of us get pick up our stories, so we read everything and we both start really acting them. And Claudette's like, less acting. Let us let us figure that out as the listener and the reader. You don't have to spell it out for
1: us. <laughs> well that's your I, I think, you know, that's clearly got to be in your nature. You just want to go. And you just want to go. Yeah. Yeah. And and what she's saying to you is just give us the let us let us figure it out in our heads which is what you would do as a reader because the interesting thing about writing is so when you're as a performer you put it out there and people are watching you it's you the physical you Mm -hmm. Um, when you're a writer it isn't the physical you it's the mental you and you are writing something and then someone else is going to read it and they're going to hear something in their head, probably quite different than what you thought you wrote.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's it's a weird thing as a writer to write dialogue and then hear actors say it. And the glory of it is especially in animation is that pretty much 99 out of a hundred cases, whatever you've written is plus it 's made so much better by an actor saying it
0: and oh interesting
1: and that 's glorious of course yeah. i 've heard it the other way too where they 've made it much worse, and that 's just <laughs> demoralizing but but most of the time you get especially in Hollywood, you get these phenomenal voiceover actors, and yeah. they take it they take the material and go where'd that come from it 's so much better than what I ever thought it was
0: so that 's so great that 's so great i can't i mean i 'm not to that level at by anywhere near that level um, where I could imagine like, you know, cause I, I, anything I write, I hear it in my voice saying sure. the line. So to then pass that on to somebody else, it's, it's a huge leap of faith and you got to release control of your words.
1: Oh, oh it's, um, you know, in the beginning of a writer's career, especially a script, script writer's career, screenwriter's career, uh, you, it's very hard to let go of it. And, mm-hmm. and most Writers at the beginning of their careers say, no, no, it's not supposed to be that way. But then <laughs> you learn over time, if they've paid you, they can do whatever they want to it. <laughs> and then the, the beauty of it is when, like I say, when it is better than what you imagined.
0: Right. Yeah. That's and that's amazing. liberating. That's it liberating you put in something and let it go.
1: It is. Well, Jason, we've been talking for a little more than an hour, and oh my God. Uh, yeah, so it's been a lot of fun up to, till now. Let's see if we can continue the fun a little bit. Um, last two questions as we wind this thing down. You've clearly worked with lots of people and have lots of experiences in your career. Um, can you share with us a, a story that's either weird, quirky, offbeat, strange, or maybe just plain funny?
0: Well, I have a few uh, strange and quirky stories, but None of those can I share with you right now. However, I, uh, I do have a story that popped in when you mentioned this. Um, it was the first thing that popped in my mind, so I'll just say it. Um, I got cast, my very first professional job was at the Lyric Theater in Oklahoma City. It's a really good summer stock theater at Oklahoma City University. And I got cast in West Side Story as Chino. right an obvious choice for a danish irish guy <laughs> with blue eyes <laughs> to play chino so that was odd and uh, but you know in their defense in the musical theater world in oklahoma city i probably was the closest thing to a puerto rican in the musical theater world. Uh, So I thought, well, this is gonna be challenging. Okay, so this is gonna be interesting. I got laughs as Chino because I realized like, wow, I could actually say like, my first line Maria says to me, when I I show up with uh, with Bernardo at their dress shop at Maria and Anita's dress shop, and Maria says, come in Chino, do not be afraid. And I did it on opening night and I got a huge laugh. But this is a chop for ladies. I I totally, like, went there. And the audience thought that was the funniest thing, and the director came backstage immediately and said, that won't be happening anymore. So got through opening night, and I was not what you call the ultimate Chino. But uh, got through opening night, Saturday night, after the cast party, and, you know, we are all a little hungover. I was standing backstage talking to one of the shark girls who I think was Irish. I think her name was, it was something McKay and she was one of the shark girls. There was a lack of ethnic girls that summer in Oklahoma city. And um, so we were backstage talking. Um, I was waiting to, I was holding the gun and I was waiting to go on stage and shoot Tony and we were chatting, and we started laughing, and I shot the gun, which was had a blank in it. I shot the gun. I was standing stage left, and I heard this gunshot go off, and I realized, oh, that was me. <laughs> and I looked on stage, and Tony had just gotten on stage to see Maria. So they had like a page and a half of stuff to do, and he like grabbed his heart. And then he realized, oh, God, no, I still have this whole scene. So he <laughs> let go of it and kept talking. <laughs> and <laughs> it was like, oh, I guess it's just gas. I don't know. It's nothing bad. <laughs> and so that would have been OK. But unfortunately, that gunshot is the cue for all the jets and sharks oh. to come running on stage. Oh, no. It was a kind of a shit show, Steve. And so everybody came running on stage They see that Tony is fine and alive and doing just great. So on mass, they all exited. It was, (laughs) and I was in the wings watching this debacle going, Oh my God, what have I just done? And I came back out and there was another blank. So then I shot him again. And this time he went down and I thought, okay, maybe I, I got away with it. And the director, Lyle Dye, came backstage for the second time. So I was two for two after my shticky first reading of This is a Chop for the Ladies. Second night, he said, if you do that again, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, so the the inappropriately cast Chino was on the way out the door. If he made one more screw up,
0: <laughs> oh my God! It was like casting like you know Milton Berle as Chino or something. It was such such the wrong choice. I don't think anybody
1: should ever really name a character after pants. <laughs> the chino the chino yes all right last question for you jason that was a lot of fun um do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip that you can share with those who are maybe trying to break into the business or maybe they're in a little bit and trying to get to the next level
0: well that's always just the age-old question and uh, i'm trying to get to the next level so whatever i say i will try to uh follow my advice uh you know (laughs) I will say, if you're getting in the business to become a star, don't do it. Mm -hmm. You've got to get in the business because you love it. I got into the business. The people that I know that are in the business, there was no conversation. It's either you either know you have to do this and there's not any doubt in your mind or find something else you know, if there is a doubt, if you have to have a talk with yourself, like, gosh, do I think I have what it takes? Or am I really good enough? Or have I, is this the right thing? Do I have the fortitude? Because it's a lot. It's a freaking roller coaster. So uh, I tell anybody, if you've got doubts, you really need to think about those doubts. Because Mm -hmm. I, I find that the people that are doing it, have had no doubts, they had the training, they have trained, they've gotten Positive enforcements, reinforcements, um, you know, they're smart. They listen to people and they know that this is the right choice. Any chance to perform, any chance to study. I'm still taking voice lessons once a week on Zoom because I don't want to, you know, if I stop singing, you know, my voice just gets out of shape. So I'm, I'm, I continue to study. Um, any So I'm always saying to keep studying, to keep yourself in shape, and to – take any possible chance to perform. Anybody that asks you to do anything, get out there and do it when you're starting out. Um, Because those those are the things that move on and they keep you going. They keep your mind going. They keep you limber.
1: Well, I am so very glad to hear you say exactly what you're saying. It's the kind of advice that I constantly am giving to certainly my students and to others who ask the question. And... If you think for a moment, even for a moment, that you really maybe shouldn't be doing this, then you shouldn't be doing this because it is not for the faint of heart or the weak of stomach. As you say, it's a roller coaster and, yep. and it's very hard to do. And so you have to want to do it. I've had people say to me in my life, um, well, why are you? doing that, why are you working so hard on these things and nobody's paying you for them and so on? And I, my answer always is, is what makes you think I have a choice? And right. If, if, yes. you, if you, the only choice that you have is to do this thing, if it's in your blood and it's, that's what's in your blood, it's like a drug and you can't get it out of your blood, then you have to do it.
0: Yeah, Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it is a roller coaster. It's a fantastic roller coaster. The highs are so worth it. And the lows are only bearable if you know that you are committed to this thing, then you go with the lows because there are a lot of lows. (laughs) Well,
1: well, and and you've been at it long enough that, uh, you know, it's not like you have other choices either. This is what you do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I play oboe. I, you know, and people say, if you didn't act, what would you do? I would pick up my oboe and I'd make those damn little reeds that I hate. And, you know, but I would do it and I would love doing it. And it would be, a, you know, I'd be content, but, but, you know, it's just worth it. And the lows are not insurmountable, you know, I mean, it, it's all doable.
1: Well, no, if they were insurmountable, nobody would do it. So yeah, exactly. it, it, it has to be that people have to be able to get past whatever those lows are in order to get to those glorious highs that you referred to yeah jason Grah, this has been an absolutely delightfully fun hour <laughs> plus on story B today and i can't thank you enough for joining me today and, and sharing your career in life
0: thank you steve i had a ball it's like the highlight of my day the highlight of my week
1: <laughs> well i'm glad i was able to do something for somebody
0: you did you did thank you <laughs>
1: And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Story Beat episodes to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden and may all your stories be unforgettable.